0: I'm seeing now the objects of perception changing again. Perceptions of being in the process of walking. Perceptions of the body moving up and down. Now perceptions of the body being still. Reflecting that this is all just happening in the same place. It all happens here, within this sphere of our awareness. Perceptions of sitting, standing, walking. Walking one way, walking another. The breath, moving in, moving out. Inhalation, exhalation. Patterns of nature coming and going, changing. So, as we sit, in perceptions of the body, sitting, the posture, steady and stable on the ground, a chair. Once the attention is grounded once again in the present moment, incline the mind towards resting, towards being that quality of knowing, open-hearted knowing, perceiving all the qualities of the present, perceiving this moment, welcoming it in, knowing it, letting it go, as if we were breathing in the moment itself. Breathing it in, knowing it, letting it go. Whenever the mind is distracted, which literally means pulled apart. Attention tied to a sound or a thought, an idea, a mood. When you notice that, that entanglement, take a second or two just to notice how that feels, how grasping identification feels. The I am, I'm feeling, I'm hearing, I remember, I am going to. Notice how that grasping feels. What's it like in the body, in the mind? And then let go, reflecting on the basic transiency, emptiness unsatisfactoriness of anything the mind grabs hold of, how it can't be kept, how it's essentially ownerless. And in recognizing that quality, allow the letting go to happen on its own. If it can't really be owned, why bother trying to own it? It's not really who and what we are Why bother claiming it? So that the letting go, the releasing, comes from a a profound place, from a, a radical place within the heart. This can't be kept. Why bother trying to keep it? Relax, let go. Coming back to this open, spacious, accommodating, receptive quality. Letting the world arise within the space of our awareness. Letting it arise, letting it be known letting it dissolve. When we let things go, we let go of a sound or a feeling in the body, even of a thought, doesn't mean to say it's necessarily gonna disappear right there. Things have their own momentum. Waking up to something means simply that we are aware of its essential transparency, its emptiness. It's insubstantiality, but the form will sustain itself till it naturally fades away, till the truck has passed, the sentence is finished. Once we've woken to it, seen its transparency, then it's been let go of. There's no identification with it. And it carries on, lives its life, and then fades. In its passing is peacefulness. But even in its presence, notice how it's basically not obstructing anything. If you find the mind is too agitated or busy, can't stay with the quality of spaciousness without being drawn into dullness and dozing off or drawn into agitation, then bring the attention back to the posture. Feel the presence of the spine let the back straighten. Relax the body around that. Bring the attention back to the breath to refocus, recenter the attention, grounded in the present moment. That's what we need. If we need a little anchor, we need a bit more substantiality. Focus in on that the attention to that. Stay with the breath until there's a a sharper quality of focus. And then when the the focus is is reestablished, if there's a steadiness, resting easily in the present, the attention not wandering, Then we can loosen the hold on the breath once again.
1: This is not a matter
0: of weakness or not being a good meditator or not trying hard enough or in the right way. It's just recognizing if the seas are high and the wind's blowing, put down an anchor or your boat's gonna get washed under the rocks, blown out to sea. If the seas are calm, the tides are still, you don't need an anchor, that's all. It's not a matter of personal success or failure, it's just what the weather, what the tides and the currents are doing. That's all. Adapting our activity, our handling of the moment according to what is here, not according to some habit or some ideal. Notice those aspects of clinging that form around the feeling of I and me. I am hearing, I am feeling. This is my memory, my body. Notice how as the mind grabs hold of things in that way. The same kind of tension. I am hearing. And when we let go, then there's just hearing. There's that same transparency, that same empty quality. Even I want, or I don't want, This recognizing, if we see it in terms of, there's wanting, there's not wanting. Suddenly it's all more spacious, unburdensome. And the mind grasps hold of something and claims it, owns it, tries to get it in that way. Buying into that feeling Whether it's a sweet feeling of relishing, or a bitter feeling of regretting or resenting, fearing. Notice what that that buying into feels like. Notice what that clinging feels like. And then when we let go, when there's a recognition of that and the heart releases, relaxes, relinquishes, take a moment to notice how does it feel when the clinging stops? What's it like when the heart is free from clinging? How is that? So we notice the state of clinging, how that is. And there's a noticing of the state of not clinging, being free of clinging. Then between the two, recognizing the contrast between the two, just allow the heart to make its own choices based on common sense. Natural attunement. how sweet the, the quality is of the heart, free from clinging. Spacious, bright, peaceful. We don't need to convince ourselves of that or tell, us, uh, tell ourselves it's a good thing. It speaks for itself. It's common sense. It's not a theory or even a promise. We know it for ourselves. and the feeling of clinging, identification. This is mine, this is me, this is what I am. That quality of conceiving the I, me, mine. We don't have to convince ourselves that's uncomfortable or cramped, tight, alienating. We can feel it, know it directly, speaks for itself. So clearly recognizing these two basic attitudes, without a big commentary, without complication, but training the heart to choose peacefulness, to choose freedom from clinging, to choose openness. I was um, reflecting earlier today that um, this this town is called Santa Cruz. Right? My extremely minimal knowledge of Spanish, um, my understanding is that means the Holy Cross. Is that correct? So um, good so far so good, <laughs> because uh, the uh, the famous Thai. Meditation teacher and philosopher Ajahn Buddhadasa was—he was quite instrumental in uh, um, developing Buddhist-Christian dialogue in in Thailand, and also he used to teach Buddhism in a Christian seminary in Thailand, and also um, he helped to translate the Bible into Thai. So he was very ecumenically minded, and uh, but uh, he. he he said uh, he, always, he felt that the, the symbol, uh, the Christian symbol of the cross was an extremely appropriate um, symbol, in, particularly in English-speaking countries, because to him, uh, the cross represented the word I deleted.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, if, you were, if you were wondering where that was going... So. <laughs> What's he talking about now? Right? So, uh, that, uh, uh, this is a, a central theme in, in Dhamma practice this, uh, understanding the, um, the role of the, the feeling of, of self and oftentimes gets represented that the Buddha taught there is no self and, and then we wonder well, if there's no self then well, what is this? <laughs> If I don't exist, what, what, what's, what's real? Because I seem to be the most real thing around here. But if I'm not here, then what? <laughs> but uh, So it's helpful to, uh, to explore that and to, to consider what the Buddha might really have been meaning. Because uh, as uh, uh, a number of people point out, um, notably Ajahn Tannisro, some of you maybe have done uh, workshops with him at Sati Center and studied with, with him. Uh, it's One of his pet themes is that you know, the Buddha actually never said, there is no self. You can't find a single place in the scriptures where the Buddha says, there is no self. And on the one occasion when somebody comes to him and asks, is there a, is there a self or not? The Buddha does not answer. He remains silent. And then uh, this fellow asks this, this question, is there a self? Is there no self? Mm-hmm. So then he pays his respects and takes off. <laughs> so then Ananda, ever the mediator and trying to make everything all right, yeah, the Buddha's attendant steps in and says, why, why didn't you answer that, Vachagoto, when he came and, and asked about uh, whether there's a self or, or not, because surely you would have been able to give him some kind of explanation or some kind of a, an account that would have been helpful. And the Buddha said, well, if I said... Um, there, is, there is a self, then would that have been in accord with my teachings that all dhammas are not self? No, Venerable Sir. <laughs> and if I had said to him, there is no self, then he would have had the feeling of, well, when I came here I had a self, and now the, the Buddha tells me I haven't got one. So uh, he would have gone away uh, perplexed and confused. So it was better to answer with silence. So within that, the, as the Buddha spells it out himself, um, that his teaching is that all dhammas, all phenomena, uh, are not self. Everything uh, of the the uh, that we normally relate to as me and mine, our body, our personality, our name, uh, our address, our CV. You know, this is who I am. I am this person. I am Amaro. I live at Byagiri Monastery. I am English. I have dual nationality. I am American. The, uh, all of those are convenient fictions. They're, uh, they're recognized as uh, useful handles to put on things. You can say, well, I'm a man uh, rather than a woman, but m- masculinity and femininity are relative. You can say, I'm English rather than American, but nationality is, is relative. Which means to say that it, it has a domain where it applies, like when you come to the border and you hand over the passport. <laughs> But in the ultimate scheme of things, it doesn't really have a, uh, any great substance. You know, to the, um, uh, to the uh, untrained eye, these, these characteristics look real. Like our name, or our address, or our, our qualifications, or our, our crimes, and so forth. They all seem real and solid. But when you look up close, you can't really say that any of these are absolutely who and what we are. And this is the purpose of Vipassana meditation. Is exploring those fictions and those habits of identification and using that quality of direct seeing and exploring, um, attending to those and seeing, oh yeah, right, it's, it's just uh, a way of talking or it's just a, a convenient structure. So that that um, rather than the, the Buddha trying to suggest that there a philosophical position that there is no self, he's saying, look, the, the things that we normally think of as who and what we are that's not, that's not what is real. And then rather than trying to, to name or establish as a concept what, I, what is actually real, or what we really are, <laughs> or talking in terms of the real self, he's, uh, he realized you, that any concept has to fall short of the mark. It hasn't got enough dimensions. It can't really represent the reality. It can't do that. It's like trying to drink tea out of a drawing of a teacup.
2: <laughs> there's, not, there's
0: not enough dimensions in the drawing. It's a three-dimensional reality trying to be poured into a two-dimensional representation. It can't work. So he his approach was learn how to not identify, to let go of what, what you're not, and then what's real will become apparent. So like in, in his little exercise, as I was describing, maybe just here and there or along the way, we, we all had moments whereby we recognized, oh, when, when, I, when there's a recognition of, oh, this is just a pain, it's not my pain, or there's a sound, it's not my sound. It's just the perception of sound, it's just the perception of breath, it's just the perception of, of weight. It's not mine, it's not who and what I am, it's just a, a passing feeling. Aha! And when that relaxation around, around that happens, when there's a letting go of the feeling of self, then what do we experience? There's peacefulness, clarity, no sense of self. Even if it's just for half a second. Isn't that the case? There's just simplicity, purity, peacefulness. Huh. Then the thinking mind can wade in and say, that's what I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, am the ulti- I am purity, I am simplicity. I am the ultimate emptiness, that's what I am. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Next contestant, please. Because
0: <laughs> the, the, there's this groping, this kind of uh, uh, fumbling and, and hankering for some defined being. We want to be something, but that's the habit of becoming. We, we're addicted to defined being, being a success, being a failure, <laughs> being, uh, being a person, being a... Uh, identified with our job, or our address, or our uh, Buddhist group, or the Buddhist group that we don't belong to. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it doesn't take much. Anything will do. And so, just getting to know that feeling of identity, what, that, what that's like, and then letting it go. So the, the deletion of the cross, so you have a very auspicious name for your town. That is, the deletion of the eye, is letting go of the that, that self centered perspective that uh how easy how pleasant life is when it's not mine <laughs> when it 's not who and what we are it uh, it suddenly becomes unburdensome it loses its its weight its uh its burdening quality and so that uh that's why, the, in, particularly in Buddhist practice and Buddhist philosophy, there's such an emphasis on understanding what that feeling of I and me and mine. In Pali, uh, the I am feeling is called ahankara. Uh, and then the feeling of mindness is mamankara. Interestingly enough, the Pali word for, ma- for mine is mama. The word for... Uh, uh, for mother is mata, but uh, the word for mine is mama. But uh, to me, this is my pet theory, this might be completely folk (laughs) etymology, but to me, the primordial owning is of the infant for the mother, like mama, mama, you know, that's mine, my source of comfort, my source of nourishment, my source of security. Uh, And that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how the, the word formed itself over the... The uh, centuries of development of the language, mama, mine (laughs) the the, the primordial sense of owning. Uh, So that, that, uh, and that quality of conceiving ourselves as a thing, as an individual, that is the source of alienation. That's why we end up feeling alone, me alone, and separated from that. The stronger the sense of the I is, and the stronger it's believed in then the more we feel alienated and, and alone, and lost. And then the more that that, that I-feeling is seen as a convenient fiction, something that's transparent. You know, The ego is a useful thing. It has its place in nature. We wouldn't have it. It wouldn't have developed if it wasn't useful. But it's where it overspills its boundaries and uh, and we take it to be an absolute reality that I am is, a, is an absolute truth. Then... There's there's immediately the quality of of alienation and, and and discontent. There's there's fear of the if I am then there's the other, which which we can experience as, as threatening. So uh, there's some uh, reflections to work with and uh, to to consider. Um, also, you can use the name of your town to remind you of this. <laughs> Think of the. <laughs> think of the name in a different way, that uh, it's uh, it's a, a tremendously helpful teaching to explore and to understand. And uh, it's not, what I'd like to <coughs> suggest, it's not like trying to believe that we have no self, but uh, a, a means of exploring those habits of self-creating. I am uh, I'm happy, I'm unhappy, I'm depressed, I'm excited, I'm a success, I'm a failure, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a child, I'm a... I'm a teacher all of the I ams, whatever, whenever I am comes into a sentence or oh, this is mine uh, this is me. As soon as that comes into a sentence in our thoughts or in our conversations, get suspicious. just, just to, keep, to keep reminding ourselves, well that's a relative truth. It can't be an absolute truth. Well like earlier today we were talking about the, the Charlie Brown cartoons. you know that all the adults always say gack, gak gak gack, gak. If any of you have seen that movie, Finding Nemo? Mine, yeah. mine, mine, the gull, that's the, the cry of the, the, the song of the seagulls. Mine, 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 mine. So you can, whenever you find yourself in a state of owning or claiming, whether it's a, an achievement or a, or a, or a problem or a, you know, or a, whatever it might be, you can just visualize the sound of the seagulls. You know. And they have this fun, I don't know who did the, the graphics, but they have this wonderful expression, mine, 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 mine. Like it's sort of slightly pompous and assertive. It's mine, 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 mine. And, uh, you know, and as, an, as a human looking on, you can say, well, don't those seagulls look stupid? <laughs> <coughs>
2: yes.
0: So just let the, let the um, associations sort of be turned back onto the, the viewer and say, whenever we hear ourselves doing that, just to realize, this is pretty stupid. <laughs> and then, uh, again, as I was saying in the meditation, we don't have to say to ourselves, oh, I should let go, or it's a good thing, or Ajahnara said, I should let go. Or, yeah, This is what the Buddha said, I should. But more, the, the when we recognize, this is really uncomfortable, or why on earth would I, I want to carry this around? Uh, or like you suddenly realize you're holding this this red hot object. It's like you don't have to say, "I think I should put this down." <laughs> like, "Ow!" You, it's a natural letting go. You think, "Wow, that hurts. Why would I want to do this to myself?" And then that the letting go comes from a much more basic and, and realistic, uh, genuine place of common sense, rather than uh, doing it because it's a system or it's a it's a theory or it's a technique or it's it's an instruction. So I offer those thoughts and uh, open things up for any questions people might have for the last half hour we have. Yeah, Rick.
2: So on the theme that you're saying, what I found helpful and really appreciate in the teachings is when I've worked with the non-self versus the no-self, it really seems to have a very different view around it. Instead of thinking, what am I not? You know, it's like, there's no. It's like, it gives me an opportunity to look at, well, maybe what am I not?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, well, you're saying non. I've been saying not, but it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, it's it's because the it's also the difference between using the the principle as or, or taking the principle to be some kind of philosophical position, like the Buddha tells us. You know, the idea that Buddha tells us to believe that there is no self. That's not how it's meant at all. It's uh, if you if you look at the Buddha's second discourse, the one that he gave in the, the, in the Deer Park, called the, the Discourse on Not-Self, the Anathalakana Sutta, what, what he, which was the first time that he used the teaching on Anatta, that it's a method of analysis. He's saying, okay, is the form, is the body, is it, uh, is it permanent or is it impermanent? Does it change? And then so his friends say, yeah, it changes. Okay, so that which changes can it be said to be totally totally, totally satisfactory, totally dependable, or not? uh, And I say, well, no, it it can't always be totally satisfactory, it can't always be dependable, it's it's unsatisfactory. Okay, so then, that which is impermanent and unsatisfactory, can that be said, this is me, this is what I am, this is myself? How does it go? E mama e so hamasmi e me ata, and then they say no, it can't be because with the implication that anything that is our true self would be, uh, would be, would be uh, happy and dependable, would be, would be satisfa- would be satisfying, would be ultimately satisfactory and and be you know, ultimately uh, dependable and ever present. So. Then he goes, okay, that's with the body and the world of form. Okay, feeling. <laughs> Does Do feelings change? Yes. <laughs> Therefore, if they change, can they be permanently and absolutely satisfactory? No. Okay, then. Then perceptions, mental formations, emotions, and then consciousness itself. So he goes through each one. So the Anattā teaching is it's a method of analyzing the body, feelings, perceptions, moods, emotions, thoughts, memories, uh, consciousness itself. And then, okay... You're using it as a way of analysing that and looking at the fact that these are these none of these five categories can be can it be said of them? This is uh, this is mine. Etang mama. uh, This is uh, this is what I am. Eso hamasmi. This uh, this is myself. Eso me Uh, No, you can't. So it's uh, in a way deconstructing the habits. So it's a method, of, it's like a, using a, a, if you've ever done any, any sewing, it's one of those little stitch unpickers. <laughs> to, when you, we do a lot of sewing as monks. You know. So, so you, and you often, your lines are not quite straight, or your folds are not quite right, so you have to do a lot of unpicking. So these teachings on Anicca dukkha Anatta, they're like your little thread unpicker. You can, you can get in there and you can unpick the stitches that have been you know, done incorrectly. So it's a tool to to deconstruct um, sort of deluded habits of of thinking and attitude. That's the main purpose. Any other? Yes. Um, you use the word mood. What, how do you define that word? Wow. <laughs> uh, feeling a mood of uh, so. Happiness, I would call a mood. Depression, I would call a mood. Um, excitement, I would call a mood. Fear, I would call a mood. I mean, it's, it's a blurry line between saying what's an emotion. It's like an, an abiding emotion, often that's a bit more in the background rather than, and it's over an extended period of time rather than just a flash of of irritation. Um, so, like if you're feeling cranky, like say I'm in a cranky mood this morning, but it, you say I would use that there's still a, a, an irritated feeling but it's um more of a, a of an a extended or also abiding quality so, so
2: it's not where i mean it's not something that is clearly any one shovel between emotion
0: perception the kind when they all inter- they all interweave with each other um uh, particularly emotion and, and mood um so um one of the the most Helpful teachings on that is in the the four foundations of mindfulness, which you you might be familiar with. Well, the third of the four foundations is called uh, chitana So chitta is just the word for for mind, and it means uh, the the contemplations of of mind. And but it mostly revolves around what I would call mood. So the Buddha then says. Uh, Knowing the expanded mind is expanded and the contracted mind is contracted. Knowing the agitated mind is agitated and the unagitated mind is unagitated. Knowing the angry mind is angry. Knowing the mind free from anger is being free from anger. So on and so forth. So he's describing these um, uh, what you can call a mood or, or an attitude or a a, like a, 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 um, a a state of mind of that, of that nature. There And then Generally, what he refers to in that, that, that part of that teaching is um, on the emotional level. Perceptions tend, uh, in, in Buddhist psychology, it tends to be more in the realm of perceiving color and sound and, and taste and smell and so forth. Uh, but it also, um, there's, a, there's a particular teaching where someone asks that question, um, uh, perception, uh, feeling perception and consciousness. Are they conjoined or disjoined? Can you entirely tease them apart from each other? And the Buddha said, no, you can't. Yeah. Well, actually it wasn't the Buddha, it was, another, it was, actually, it was the uh, Arahant nun, uh, uh, Dhammadina, who was one of the enlightened nuns who was, doing the, was in that dialogue. And she said, no, you can't. You can't fully distinguish them. They're, they're, they're figures of speech that you use. So they're broad brush categories. But so I, I use mood, just to, in the way I was describing, referring to uh, a, a, a long term or a, or a, an extended uh, attitude or or emotional state. But it's the kind of thing that we most easily identify with. That uh, you're, in terms of being a character type, say you know I'm uh, I'm depressed or I'm unhappy or. I'm, I, I'm excited. And they seem so real, it's so natural to identify with them, that I am that. It seems so normal to, to say that, to, but so to recognize, oh no, this is just a happy mood. This is a depressed mood. And uh, and so sometimes even just to say the word just, you can feel like, because <laughs> it, it can be so real. Um, and But that I find is helpful, just to bring that, that quality of, uh, of objectivity into this, oh, maybe it is just <laughs> a-, a mood, it's an attitude, it's been here for years, <laughs> or it's a long term thing. But, oh, right, that which knows the depressed feeling, or that which knows the anxious feeling, is not anxious. They're, they're, they're not the same, they're not, they're not a single thing. And so then it gives us an opportunity to, to see, oh, even though it seems to be ever-present, actually it's continually modulating, and it does arise and pass away. I'm not totally anxious all of the time. Anxiety arises and fades away, but it can be a, a well-worn habit. So then you, you think, oh, I'm an anxious person. That's what I am. And then this way of looking and exploring our mind and using the meditation in that way helps us to see, well, no, no, uh, that's just a figure of, spe- that's a convenient way of talking about it. I have a habit of experiencing anxiety and buying into it. <laughs> anxiety arises. It's not ever-present. It arises and then it does its thing and then it fades away. And so that you, you're helping that shift to occur whereby rather than I am an anxious person to there's the... Awareness of anxiety arising and passing away.
2: Yes, Irene again.
0: Yeah, of course it can be. Yeah, of course. But that. So. To be. To be wary of that, then it's. It's important to have a, a mindfulness of, of. of your own intentions. So when you. when you are. You, you're telling yourself, okay, well, that's good enough. Or maybe this is. is uh, this is a. it's good enough. Then what you're doing is you're offsetting your habit, your compulsions towards. Perfectionism, or your um, your uh, say uh, restless qualities, or, or the um, your rec- your lack of recognition of how the world actually functions. Okay, you know that that kind of area. But you you're you're using that kind of reflection as a as a tool. It's a skillful means, and so. If you're applying mindfulness and wisdom to to that, then and looking at your own looking at your own intentions, then you can consider: well, hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, why why was I why am I so quick to jump to that judgment that it's good enough? You know, what what's, what else is going on here? And then you, if you if you look and you see well, there's, there's a basic laziness or a, a just an aversion, then you recognise: oh well, that that, that aversive Habit. I'm just looking for an excuse to, to not bother. Then, and only you can know that. You know, we can only know that for ourselves. So, that mindfulness of, of that uh, intention or the motivation is is an important piece. Um, and so that if we just make it into a habit, like a perceptual habit, we say, "Oh, that's good enough." You know, forget it. Uh, then, that that is not going to serve us well but if we if we take it as a principle and then apply it with with discretion using mindfulness and wisdom then it then it will be helpful you know it's like any any principle of of dharma practice you know, it's it's like any uh, tool in the kitchen in the in the uh, you know, amongst the the knives and the graters and the choppers and the, they they all serve their own purpose, but you have to use them in the right way. But they they are not intrinsically useful and good, uh, or the all the the tools in a in a surgeon's uh, op, you know, operating uh, kit. They all have their own particular purpose, but you have to use them in the right way. The tools can't do the job on their own. They have to be applied with skill. So it's exactly the same with any kind of Principle of Dhamma. You know, concentration practice, there's, there's wrong kinds of samadhi, there's wrong kinds of insight. There's, just earlier today, I was saying, uh, talking about the, what are called the defilements of insight, the vipassana upakilesa. And these are things like uh, that, at, they can be the like, aspects of meditation or meditation experiences that are grasped in the wrong way. So it can be things like all-encompassing knowledge, uh, unremitting energy, continuous mindfulness. These are problems. <laughs> you might think, well, hang on a minute, I'd like problems like that. But they, if if they are grasped in the wrong way, they are on the one, on one level, they can be incredibly wholesome. But they can also, if they're grasped incorrectly, they can turn into major obstructions. Probably most of us have been on retreats at some time or another where Somebody's got (laughs) got carried away with some aspect of meditation, got over concentrated, or got deluded in in some state, and uh, so that which was uh, a useful tool has been handled wrongly, like picking up the wrong end of the scalpel, or uh, the using the 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 knife in the in the the knife drawer in the kitchen to threaten the other cook. That 's not the way to cut the carrots <laughs> yeah. so this kind of principle if you if you just apply it blindly or think oh well, it's always useful and right, however you handle it, however you apply it, then you're going to create trouble for yourself but it's a I mentioned it as a, a very, very helpful way of offsetting that um, uh, that habit of of uh never uh, allowing ourselves to to um be content with the way things are uh, it 's always got to improve it or fix it or change it it 's like the uh, um, that being able to see things that it was, in a way it 's rather like uh, uh, there 's a a uh, an aphorism of Suzuki Roshi which is everything is perfect exactly as it is, but there's always room for improvement. <laughs> so we often miss that, that it's perfect as it is, that it's, com- it's finished as it is. And, that, and that's how, it's by recognizing that, that good enough side, that we find the quality of rest. Otherwise, there's, there's no peace in the world because samsara is, is incompleteness. It's endlessness. It doesn't, it doesn't finish. <laughs> there's, no, there's no completion there. So it's only, it's only when where there's a, a, a recognition of, well, this is samsara, it's supposed to be broken. <laughs> it's like this. Then we find, this body is, is just what it is. It's, it, it's getting older. Not all the bits work the way they used to. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be like this. So it's, it's finding that, yeah, you still look after the body and take care of it and do what you can, but you know it's, it's this. It's this, this uh, ordinary, imperfect, ideal thing. Does <laughs> that make sense? Yeah. In, in Japan, they have this, uh, maybe there's some Japanese people here, I'm not sure, but, uh, and i probably pronounce this wrongly, but this principle of wabi-sabi, the Beauty of Imperfection, which is a major piece of the Japanese pottery and, and artwork, that it's like deliberately noticing the fact that it's, it's in a way taking good enoughness to its <laughs> ultimate degree, that, that you're, you're relishing the imperfection of that. That's what makes it perfect. And seeing what, the, what you would technically or, or casually think of as as a flaw, as an imperfection, as actually what makes it really beautiful.
2: Is so closely connected to the teaching, and they think, well, you know, it's it's a tool to explain uh, certain things that happen that that otherwise cannot be explained. Um, I mean, I I
0: Karma of being tired of being asked the, co- <laughs> the same question over and over again. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you're you're asking, but uh, in but in that in that respect of with k- karma just means action. The Pali word is karma, Sanskrit karma. It just means action but we use the word karma as a shorthand for, for the word karma vipaka which means action and its result so all it is is cause and effect so to say you don't believe in karma is like saying i don't believe in cause and effect like well uh
2: <laughs>
0: let, let's go to let's go to physics 101 shall we you know okay now <laughs> you know gravity you know. because because i lifted this up and then i let it go then it drops uh-huh. there's a cause and there's an effect it's like it's not a matter of belief really you, know, you can see that, <laughs> <laughs> no, <I laughs> that of, oh, it just it, it can mean that that's one very small subset of it it's just action and its result cause and effect um, and so it's uh if you if you narrow it down, you make it boil it down to its essence. Then it's that—that's the, the heart of it, and it's—it's not—it's not nothing to do really with the belief system. The Buddha was a pragmatician. he was pragmatic rather than being an idealist. Um, so that his teachings are given in order for us to 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 free ourselves from delusion and suffering, and so that those kind of teachings, rather than trying to be some sort of huge philosophical map that describes the whole universe. Or it's, it's, it's more important to say, use them for recognizing how our life works. And so the teachings on karma and its results, just be able to see, okay, well, this happened when I was a five-year-old, so now I have this habit now. Like that Because of eating a tangerine with its skin on when I was one and a half, I now dislike marmalade. <laughs> because I was violently ill. I ate the tangerine out of the fruit bowl and didn't realize you had to peel it first. And, and so the taste of orange peel is intrinsically repellent. Some people can't believe why I don't like marmalade. But I know, like, the, the taste of orange peel makes me go, ugh, <laughs> cause and effect, you know. It's, it's nothing mysterious about it. Um, whether it's because in, in a past life I was cruel to a tangerine <laughs> you know, and, it's, and I'm now being, having the, the revenge of the tangerine realm is being exacted on me, I don't know and I don't really care, you know. Because the, the simplicity of it is that, oh, if I'm offered the choice between strawberry jam and marmalade, my eye will go to the, to the strawberry jam. <laughs> It, it's not anything complicated or difficult it's just you're just looking at how things affect each other cause and effect and that and seeing that the problems don't come from even what the causes are or the effects are but the identification that just seeing that you know I've got a marmalade problem you <laughs> know if I identify with it then I create suffering if I recognize oh there's just a, there's a habit of of the, when 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 uh, when seeing a marmalade pot, disinterest arises. <laughs> That's all. It's, n- it's not a personal problem or, a, or anything special, it's just a pattern. And the more that we learn to see, I mean, I'm just using a, trivi- a trivial example. Obviously, other aspects are much more um, significant or, or painful. But it, the principle's the same. It's that like if you're seeing, it's not personal, it's just the way nature, it's just a pattern of nature. And so the Buddha's, the Buddha's encouragement of reflection on equanimity is, I'm the owner of my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I'll be the heir. That's And then the result of, of reflecting in that way is it brings us to a quality of equanimity. It's like, oh, it's not personal. It's not success and failure, gain and loss. It's not me getting or me losing or me being or me me not being. It's just nature doing its thing, that's all. It's not uh, the, the successes, it's just karma, the failures, it's just karma. These, having been born, you know, things happen. It's just action and its result. Just the nature doing its thing. It's not a personal achievement, it's not a personal loss. It's just this. So, you're not switching yourself off or not feeling it, but it brings the heart to this quality of profound attunement, there's a, a balancedness so that it's, that's the purpose of reflecting on karma, is to bring us to equanimity, not to bring us to more confusion <laughs> or uh, we're just ha- trying to um, have an idea about it but seeing uh, that we create so much suffering because of taking things personally taking being praised personally oh, how wonderful I am, or being criticized like oh, how can they say that then just seeing that it's, it's, if, if it's seen as not being personal then it's, oh praise, well that's a sweet taste okay, criticism, oh well that's a bitter taste and we're able to leave it at that Well, again, it's totally about how you handle it. I mean, that could just be fatalism, and it's that's related to this, the the the, the weird, um, the the the, uh, the weird philosophy of the right path or the you know the right thing. That uh, as as I was saying earlier, there is no right thing. <laughs> that uh, you, we we can take the teachings of karma and make it very fatalistic, which is not what the Buddha is talking about at all. We have an infinity of choices. But the, the, the principle of good enough is just recognizing that, as I said, you know, samsara is not completable. You can't, you can't find finality in the conditioned world. And so that it's being able to recognize, oh, this is as much as can be done. Leave it alone. Okay, so maybe one more, yes. I'll that. <laughs> um, well, um, it's uh, there's a number of, of uh, different things um, in terms of it. It's really a, also depends a bit on what things are helpful to you or what are important to you. You know, whether it's um, just the commitment to it, or supports a commitment to a daily practice, or just a sense of personal contact. You know. Um, one thing that, that you you can do is um, find you know a few friends that say would you mind if I called you up every couple of weeks and we have a and we have a, a dharma conversation not talking about what's in the garden or what the weather's doing but <laughs> and uh, and just creating those kind of um, uh, a spiritually based contacts. Just with, with a few friends, say, so would you would the, would you mind doing that? Or uh, also, one of the things that to 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 do that with is to make a. Li- if you have uh, interested friends or people that, that are like minded, to create little project together. Say, okay, let's let's look at this particular book together, or let's let's take this sutta and uh, make a uh, a project out of of looking at it during the week and then I'll you know, call each other on Saturday morning and then have our have our chat about that So actually putting some bones into it and giving it some form rather than than just having a uh, like a undefined thing. then there's something that you are both working on or all three or four of you are working on and And so while you're doing that you're also thinking about each other and then they're, they're thinking about you and so it's in a way sustaining that quality of, of connection and then I'd say just the um, tapping into the various, uh, so it sounds like you're doing various uh, activities and programs from a distance. So so where do you live now? What? Uh, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> you came a long way today.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, I'm so glad
0: to be here. Okay, well very good, it's uh, reached 4.30 now. So. Thank you for all of your uh, good questions and your good company through the weekend. I'm uh, very happy to have spent this time with you all. And thank you, Mary Grace, for creating the invitation. Excuse to come back to the the place of the deleted eye.
2: <laughs> the, holy, the holy
0: place of the deleted eye.
2: So I wanted to make a couple of announcements. Do you want to do the...
0: Your blessings again at the end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No argument with that. Okay. Can I do announcements
2: first and then walk? Let's do the sharing of blessings okay. first. Okay.
0: So do please join in with this. Is a way of offering up <laughs> the good karma of. Our <laughs> Whatever goodness has come forth from our actions and our our gathering, our reflections and efforts today, it may be shared with all beings to their benefit. Mm
1: -hmm. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these may darkness and delusion be dispelled.
2: Um, The announcements are we could sure use some help cleaning up. Um, It would probably be helpful to pick up all of the cushions and stack all of the chairs so we can sweep the floor. We have a class meeting in here in an hour and a half. So it would be nice to have the place spiffed up a little. And it would also be really helpful to have a little help with the kitchen stuff of cleaning up what's left from the meal. So if you have a few minutes to stay and support that, show that <coughs> I'm not here with Ajahn Amrao cleaning up, um, that would be great. And then the second thing is that, um, if you're <laughs> we have no idea if or when we ever have your presence here again and Ajahn Amaro has been an enormously important thread and part of Vipassana Siddhartha since its inception, since the very earliest years of my teaching here. A great support to our community and to me. So I would like us to offer you our respects. So this is three bows, and those of you who are comfortable bowing, please bow, and if you're not, offer your respects in any way you'd like.